Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. So glad you could join us here today. Want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. And please check him out on the internet. Ken Quiethawk, native storyteller. Uh, he and his wife have pursued a career in, in preserving uh, a way of, of preserving history. And, and it's just an amazing gift and talent that they have and one that is slowly fading into into memory and uh, important that you understand another way of putting your wisdoms out there and sharing them with humanity. I have a special guest with me today and uh, I don't normally go into their bios heavily but, but this one is so cool. Um, I have Reverend Bill McDonald with me and he's been a continuous on a continuous spiritual journey spanning slightly over seven decades. That's 70 years for those of you not yet awake. His whole life has been a mystical trip in search of gurus and paranormal and self-discovery and self-realization. He's written many books about his spiritual transformation experiences and near-death experiences, including supernatural events during his combat tour of duty in Vietnam. His autobiography, Warrior, A Spiritual Odyssey, takes you on a life quest for love, understanding, forgiveness, and enlightenment. And his follow-up book, Alchemy of a Warrior's Heart, which I just finished reading, continues that mystical journey, including four trips to India for even more profound experiences with holy men, miracles, and his professional relationship, and his personal, sorry, relationship with the divine. He's spoken around the world, including Germany, England, Wales, Bolivia, Vietnam, and India, and has been involved with a dozen films and documentaries. He was a keynote speaker at last year's International Association of Near-Death Studies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and uh, their two, uh, 2019 conference, and has been on over 1,500 TV and radio show, shows over the last 20 years. He is the founder and president of Spiritual Warrior Ministries and the founder of the 
Military Writers Society of America and the American Authors Association. Currently, he's working on half a dozen nonprofits assisting everything from suicides to PTSD for veterans to world peace organizations. He's an award-winning poet, author, documentary film advisor, minister, artist, a Vietnam War veteran with a chest full of medals, including the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and 14 Air Medals, etc. I love that. He's been married for 51 years to his high school sweetheart and has six grandchildren. And on top of that, he's taking the time out for us today to be on Nightlight Radio. I'm honored to have you with me, Reverend Bill. So so glad that you're, you're here to join us. Well, namaste from smoky uh, West Coast <laughs> where, where, I, where I'm watching the sunrise up there at the moment through this blood-red orange sky, which would normally be an odd moment, like, wow, look, I need to realize that's going through all that ash and, and cloudy smoke and everything. But uh, California will survive like the phoenix, right? We will rise from the ashes. <laughs> well, you know, the Indian Native Americans used to, used to actually burn forests on a regular basis to uh, feed the soil. So you know, in in the long run, possibly this is healthier for the for the environment because all of the ash mixes in with the the, the soil and makes it a richer environment for new trees to grow. Well, as long as we don't make an ash out of ourselves, I guess we're okay. Yes, <laughs> don't build in the middle of it. I think is the secret. <laughs> um, you have you have a profound. Um, bio here and and it it is uh fascinating the journey that you've been on and of late i have run into so many people who are seeking to be on a spiritual journey and and aren't really sure how to do it and it feels like your life has been um a journey that that from a very very early on you were aware of the spiritual nature that 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 was kind of guiding you through life and um it's you have you have so trusted to the spiritual guidance that you've gotten that that your experiences have been nothing short of absolutely miraculous and profound no that's uh you've hit the nail on the head it's all about trusting the universe, trusting God, trusting the divine. And and that manifests itself in many ways because I've noticed that my way of praying versus the common way of praying, uh, I think there's a telltale difference. For example, most people pray to God like God is Santa Claus. God, <laughs> I need a job. God, I need a car. I need money. I need my help. Save somebody. They're dying. They always go to the divine for a favor, for a gift, uh-huh. to change, change their destiny. To they don't want to, they don't want to deal with their karma. You know, and me, uh, I go. I figure if I got to ask for something, there's no faith on my on my part. Then God knows exactly what I need, when I need it, and and, and what uh, what amount. So like when I was really young, uh, like. 24 hours after I graduated from high school, I was on an airplane with a one-way ticket to the Hawaiian Islands because I had this dream about 
going to Hawaii, you know, and meet the big kahuna and, and, and doing all this stuff. I and uh, find the divine. And uh, when I went there, I had $40 in my pocket. $40. Now, even in 1964, that's not a lot of money. <laughs> it was like uh-huh. hotel, $60 a night. So that, that kind of showed you where that was at, right? So anyway, it turned out I was there for the whole summer. And uh, and I actually was kind of adopted uh, by a, a kahuna. Uh, David K. Bray, which was the imminent kahuna of the of the uh, kahuna religion. And uh, he was like 66 years old. I was 18. He made me his apprentice. And I learned a lot from him, but it's not what I was looking for. It was just a, a step in on my, on my uh, journey. whole idea when you take a spiritual journey is, is not make it a separate, uh, a separate path from your actual life. So when I went hitchhiked across the United States, went to Europe at 19 years old, uh, I, I traveled around Europe and actually had little to no money. In fact, I actually started to run out of money. And when I had down to just a, a few cents in my pocket in Europe, everybody, I found that everybody fed me. I actually gained 20 pounds when I had absolutely no money. Everybody took me in. Everybody fed me. Uh, I'm talking about judges. I had a woman judge, the highest ranking woman judge in all of France. She lived in Paris at a penthouse apartment, her her husband and her. And all I did was ask her son on the subway how to get out of town so I could hitchhike, and he didn't understand me. Brought me home his mother who could speak English. And, and I spent several days there. They wind it tight. So wherever I went, a testament to that story is when I left there, and I was having, I was getting every I get picked up hitchhiking, and somebody would feed me. Somebody feed me lunch. Somebody feed me dinner. Something always happened. So I ended up one day, and I was sitting at four thirty-five o'clock in the in the at late afternoon along the Seine River, and uh, I had no place to stay. I had no meals. I had no money. And I sat down. God, you know my situation. I expect to be taken care of. I expect you to find me a place to you know, stay. I expect you to feed me dinner. I expect you to take care of me. That's your job, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know. So, so I sit there, and on top of that, I go, I gave you three minutes. I just sat there. I gave you three minutes. And I'm not going to ask anybody. That's always my rule. Never beg. Never ask. <clears throat> Don't demand. Just, <clears throat> excuse me, this ash is getting to me in the house here, but so I sat down, and pretty soon after about two minutes, this beautiful older woman, I was 19, right? She had to be all 26, 28, right? She comes out there, and uh, she looks at me, and she starts speaking to me in French, which obviously I don't speak. If you know me, I barely speak English. So uh-huh. she, <laughs> she ascertains that I'm American, asks me what I'm doing there, and I said, I'm waiting. She goes, waiting for what? And I said, I'm waiting. She goes, for what? And I said, well, uh, for a place to stay and a meal. And I'm just waiting. She goes, that's crazy. Nobody's going to come and take care of you. So she grabs me by the hand like I'm a crazy person and takes me into this big building that's having a, a city hall type meeting. And there's a whole audience of the town and of city council. 
she goes on stage and she talks in French and I'm just standing the back of the room. Everybody turns around and looks at me. Next thing you know, there's a sea captain's wife who has nine children. Her husband's out to sea and she adopts me. I spend two weeks there. They feed me every day. The local school comes to me and asks me if I'll teach conversational English at the school. And so the next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching at the school. I'm walking around the town. I'm like the local celebrity. Everybody's feeding me. Every time I walk by a, a bakery, somebody gives me something to eat. <laughs> it was, so my whole journey around the world and all my great adventures, it's always done knowing, knowing, not wishing, not hoping, but knowing I'll be taken care of. And I put that to test at my age, it, it, uh, let's see, four years ago, 2016, I had a dream uh, that I was speaking in, in uh, the UK and uh, Florida. And so I booked a ticket to Florida <laughs> ended up from Florida <laughs> to London, right? And my wife goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I just booked a trip. She goes, where to? And I said, she goes, well, how long are you going to be gone? I go, well, 55 days. She goes, well, what are you doing for money? You know, it's like not on our budget, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, I got eight, I got $80. She goes, you got $80? I go, yeah, I got $80. Uh, plenty. For 55 days. Think about it. I don't have any, I don't have any talks booked, right? I got no workshops booked. <laughs> I got nothing booked. And I leave, I get to Florida, and everybody thinks I'm crazy in Florida. My friends go, well, you know, I'll gather some of my friends together, and we could talk at somebody's house. And they'd bring a dozen friends, and they'd buy 15, 20 books from me. And, you know, and I'm, that's giving me a little change. I, I like that. And then somebody set up a uh, at the Tampa Library. I, I did a, a talk there, and I was a pretty big crowd. And then somebody saw that and goes, you know, I got I got clients coming for a special dinner. I'm an investor. And these people buy in stocks and bonds from my, my company. And I'd like you to be a guest speaker. And I'm going, I said, you haven't, you haven't really listened to what I talk about. I'm not talking savings and bonds or investments. He says, yeah, I know. I've heard what you're talking about. But for some reason, I think that they'll want to hear it. And so I wasn't really going to do it. But then I had that inner nudge. And, and, and he goes, he says, okay. He says, I'll buy a book for every guest that goes to this thing. Uh, I said, okay, great. It's free dinner. I said, okay, great. And it was in Orlando. So I get there. He's got 50 some people there. So he bought like two cases of books. I, and not only do they want to hear me talk, uh, it was going to be 20 minutes an hour. It was four and a half hours until the restaurant kicked us out. And then I outside, I talked in the parking lot for another hour. And I realized that, you know, you can't label groups of people like these people also want. I figured they want to hear about investment stories and money. But you know what? When it comes to the spiritual, that marketplace is open everywhere. So when I got to so when I got to England and I and I I got off the airplane, the guy was going to meet me. Uh, he couldn't show up. He had a six kid, a sick kid, but he could, couldn't contact me because I was my phone wasn't working there. And uh, so I was kind of I went on the internet at a local place and said I'm in I'm in London. Uh, anybody wants to to meet me? But next thing you know, 
I got a guy who says, get on the train, go downtown London, get off this station, I'll meet you. Three, four nights at a beautiful hotel, paid for, meals paid for, tour given to me. Somebody else comes, put me on a train, I'm taken to Wales. I stay at, at, uh, at my new friend's house, James, and his, and his lovely uh, family. It was a beautiful experience. End up talking uh, to the uh, the town. They had a big gathering, uh, big, huge gathering in the city, and they had their MP. That's kind of like a congressman, and they had all the local people there. Again. And I was I was one of the guest speakers there. It was really kind of neat. And then I got booked at the Red Corner Gym, which I, I go, what? I, I'm going to a boxing gym, you know, martial arts place. So that turned out to be one of the most beautiful experiences. I had met with, the, you know, about a dozen of these fighters. And you'd think they'd be into the, you know, all that fisticuffs and the martial art. They listened to my message for two hours. And I made permanent lifetime friends with a bunch of them, including the man that ran the, uh, the gym there, the guy who run the group, uh, Tony Summers, who's an author. Really a, a, a beautiful person. And then I met a guy named uh, Jeff Thompson, who uh, I just interviewed on my uh, YouTube channel. Just another beautiful human being. But it was just one great thing after another great thing. And I mean, even, even when I went to the airport to leave, uh, the airline had some kind of problem. And they said, well, stay at the Hilton. We'll notify you when the flight's ready. So I, I had an overnight at the Hilton and free meals. You don't normally get that for a delayed flight, right? So No. And, and while I was there, I went to a spiritual retreat from the school and that was like $2,500 or something, a big amount of money. And then I got off by the time I got home and, and my wife looked at me and, the, and she saw I was back and I opened up my wallet and I gave her like $3,000 cash. And that's after spending 2,500. And so it was like, all things are taken care of. How many people would get on an airplane, fly to a foreign country with a ticket, not bringing them back home for 55 days with $80? Now, that is totally trusting the universe. It oh. is. It is. And, and you've had a lifetime of building up that understanding and that trust and 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 having it validated time after time after time so that so that you have invested yourself in the spiritual journey um profoundly i mean yeah, even let's... through i mean step back a little bit because i mean you've had you've had incredible health issues and spiritually speaking you probably should have been dead and buried a dozen or more times and yet Spirit has kept you alive for a reason and and a purpose. So there is there is this this element of you you definitely are in service, sort of, and and are being guided by being aware of the the nudges the universe gives you, and that that's. That that's that's an un, that's a difficult, unusual place to get. It takes it takes a lot of trust and and a lot of um, understanding to get there. You, Abs- you, I mean, you you know, I just um, 
Yeah, I, I don't want to encourage people to suddenly get on a plane and go someplace. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's like the story from Autobiography of a Yogi, which is a great spiritual classic written by yeah. Paramahansa Yogananda, 1946. And he talks, there's a chapter in there, The Penniless Boys or something, where he gets on, uh-huh. he runs home, and he gets on a train, he's got no money, and uh, it, it just everything happens, right? He's totally trusting the universe to take care of him. And he goes, and he's fed, and he's taken care of, and a return ticket's bought for him. I mean, I read that when I was nine years old. That kind of inspired me. And, and I've always had this thing, always had this thing, that it's, you cannot hope for, you cannot pray for, you cannot desire, wish, or have I have faith that maybe something No. You have to approach your life as a knowing. You know the sun's coming up. You know for a fact that God knows what you need. You will be given what you need. Maybe uh-huh. not want, which could be different. You know, you may want a Mercedes-Benz, a 1957 Chevy, you know, whatever it is, right? Whatever you get, you get. So, the divine universe will take care of you. We manifest, we manifest what comes to us. And that means good, bad, indifferent, and everything else. It is always a free will. And people don't believe that sometimes because they're short-sighted because they're looking at this lifetime. I didn't, I didn't want to have cancer. I, I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to get a divorce. All, everything that happens to you, good, bad, indifferent. It's all manifested from your past thoughts, actions, deeds, and intentions. Because uh-huh. you, you suddenly, well, this guy's all doing all this good work. Well, it still happened to him. Well, what's his intentions for doing those things? Is it for publicity and the way to thank? It's like helping somebody, but you want that person to be ever grateful to you and then beholding to you. Well, then that's not really a good deed. That's not really a good positive thing, right? So do everything without attachment, meaning you expect nothing in return for whatever service and love you give, including uh-huh. forgiving somebody. You don't expect them to It's not important. So that's that's my philosophy. And for those people out there that say, oh, he's on this spiritual journey, and I'm going to say, no, we are all truly on a spiritual journey. Some of us yeah, are and I think also that more. term uncon- unconditional comes in here too. And that's, that's, uh, that's a mountain in and of itself um, to be unconditional in your life, to not, to, to truly not expect something in return for a kindness or love or, or favor that is given to, to just give and, and, you know, have open hands because you know it's amazing you get so much more when your hands are open than when they're clutching so you know it's it's you give and you don't expect and when you don't expect that's that's when magic happens in your life as far as i'm concerned um the times that i have just done done things because it felt right it felt good and i had a good time and it didn't matter if i got anything back or not i didn't care and those are the times that um, 
I can remember being at a, a convention a number, uh, well, a long time ago now, <laughs> decades ago, and and because what I was doing was unusual, I, I told them it was a spiritual um, convention, and, and you know said, look, the things that I do are unconventional, so let me do them for free so people can be exposed to them and you know if they want to donate to the to the organization fine but i just you know frankly i want to have the experience and and play with it so let me play with it and it it was amazing because by the end of the conference i had been given more gifts than than i could count and it was it was just because people were were very appreciative of what I had done, but I hadn't done it in anticipation of getting anything back. I just was having a very good time playing with a new modality and and seeing if it would it would really generate the kind of information and wisdom for the people that I was working with and It turned out it it was really cool, and everybody enjoyed it and got something out of it and and I was given gifts all over the place. So, um, and again, if if you give knowing that something's coming back, then it's not unconditional. No, so you know. So it's 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 uh, it's an amazing experience. And once you cue into it, once you start living with it, once as you start applying it to your life, it does work. But it has to be unconditional. And, you know, if you're thinking, well, I'll get something, then it's not unconditional. There's no, that's, uh, a- that's, that's the key. And, and, and as a minister, I'll say this, because I counsel people on marriage and stuff. And it's like if you marry somebody and, and you, you're expecting a certain reward to come back, well, if I do this for him, I, I expect reciprocated, right? Well, then you're basically you're selling your love. You uh-huh. should do kindness and, and and love people just because that's, that's who you are. I tell people, you know, when life is over, it's not it's not really who loved you because that could be influenced by gifts, favors. You're famous. People are hanging around. They're fan. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff, right? Uh-huh. It's not who loved. You're defined by who you loved. Even if the whole world hated you, but you were praying for the world and you were helping and serving the world and nobody even knew it, your intentions were to better the world, raise the level of love and energy and forgiveness. That's what counts because you can't control. You can't, and that's the key. You can't control who loves you. There's beautiful people out there that children refuse to talk to them because why? Parents insisted they get off drugs. Right? Well, uh-huh. gee, terrible parents they want the kid to get arrested, go to jail, or die for drugs. So the kids don't like them, right? So you can't judge it. Well, the kids didn't like them. And no. The parent loved the child. And sometimes by loving the child, the parent sometimes has to be a little wiser. Sometimes it means being a little more firmer. And sometimes it means taking a beating for doing the right thing. So that's I tell people it's always about what you can do for others, not what others can do for you. And uh, as Kennedy said, right, ask not what your country could do for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
But it's like St. Francis of Assisi, beautiful prayer. You know, it's not about being understood. It's about understanding. It's not about getting. It's about giving. It's not about being loved. It's about loving. It's not about being understood. It's about understanding others. And I think I'm paraphrasing that. I think that basically is the essence of where I tread my path. It's, it's all about love. It's all about service. And I have these things happen. That you've read some of my works. Watch maybe uh-huh. some of my, my YouTube. And you know, my spiritual experiences are all over the map and beyond the map. Uh, but it's like in India, when, when, the, uh, when the young devotee goes to the master and goes, Guru, uh, I just had this wonderful experience, you know, uh, samadhi and blah, blah. And they go on and on. What does the guru just pats him on the head? Says, go sweep the porch. Go fetch the water. <laughs> chop the wood. Just, it's just what it is. Don't, don't get into it, right? So on your spiritual journey, and I'll emphasize this again because this show is not about me and it's not about you, really. The people tuning into this, why are they tuning in? If they happen upon this thing, they're tuning in for some other organic reason. Whether they understand it or not, there's a message here someplace that they look for. So we never really waste our time. There's no accidental, you know, uh, I try to tell that to my to my insurance agent. Uh, there's no such <laughs> thing as an accident. In your case, there is. We're <laughs> rubbing. But anyway, so life is truly our creation. And that's kind of where I was trying to go this morning. It's truly our creation. We manifest, to go back to what I was talking about, we manifest every aspect of our life, including our health. Now, there's issues we don't fully understand when it comes to karma because. You see some people having some god-awful stuff. It's some very saintly people having some, you know, St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, you know, he had his eyes. He was blind, all these things. And some very sick saints and sages and stuff. And you go, what's going on? So you don't know sometimes some of the great things like Jesus. I mean, did he deserve to be nailed to a cross, you know, and beat up and all? So you got to ask yourself, sometimes the great ones or spiritual beings will literally take on karma for the world, for others. And uh, I know it's really a hard thing to understand why somebody with Jesus would take that on and do that. But um, I do believe that's, that's real. I believe that's possible that people can take on that stuff. So, and then there's some people that come into a lifetime and you go, man, everything's happened to them. But you don't realize that person coming into this lifetime before they came in, in their pre-conference before they were born, Hey, look, I want to get rid of as much garbage as I can. Give me everything you can this lifetime when you know, I'm spiritually strong. Give it to me. I want to burn it all. And a lot of people on this <laughs> that are truly serious, they take on some really heavy karma. I mean, really uh-huh. big time. And they'll take on a lot. They want to speed it up. So when you see some person born into a family and the person is blind or crippled or they they got deformities or they got mental disorders or they get you know all kinds of stuff and you go oh my god you know what this is this person in the last lifetime must have been terrible no also what i'm told when i was in india was that some people will take on some of these hideous things to come into a lifetime with because they've promised to take care of other souls like their parents and stuff that they're going to have teach them 
compassion and teach them love by having them take care of them and validate all these lessons that they So you can't sit back and judge anything happening to anybody because you don't know the whole picture. But you do know this much. You have the power of your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, your desires, desires uh, to create whatever future comes to you. So if you're thinking about, if you're a married person and you're watching pornography and your mind is going down that road and you're, pretty soon now you're thinking about other people and outside of your marriage, uh, you're manifesting a future where you may be committing adultery, right? Um, right. And if you're in the present moment, like during this pandemic and everybody's home, right? I, I experienced when I was the first couple of months, well, I'm bored. Let's eat, right? So I go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That weight went on quick, right? That's instant karma, right? So <laughs> some things you could trace. Some things, it just doesn't make sense. So I would say, if you're really a strong spiritual person, what you really want to be doing is having instant karma. In other words, you do something, you get your hand slapped. Yeah, then you know, oh, yeah, boom, I cheated on my taxes, I got caught, right? Whatever it is. So that's not a bad thing. What is a bad thing is somebody, let's say O.J. Simpson, he gets away with murder, as a lot of us believe. He's going to pay for that someday. Another lifetime oh, yeah. is going to come, except, except when he gets punished the next time, he may be that innocent guy who goes to jail for 20 years, right? And you're going to go, oh, that poor guy is innocent. He's in jail for 20 years. He didn't deserve that. We don't know, right? We don't know. Right. And what would be sad was he won't understand why it's happening. So it's always best to own up to your present karma, deal with it, and take care of it. So... I don't know what that had to do with this whole theme of the show today, but there you go. I never thought I'd ever talk about O.J. Simpson on an interview. <laughs> well, I enjoyed the well, we, ride. Um, yeah. yeah. So, no, it, 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 I, I think everybody today. I think everybody today is is taking inventory. Um, whether or not you know they they are are going as deeply as as they should, um, they're probably going as deeply as is appropriate for them. And I think what I'm seeing basically is people taking stock, taking inventory, and for the most part, trying to take responsibility. I really believe that there is a new awareness out there, and and I think. I'm also seeing people change how they perceive God, the creator, the source, whatever name you want to put on it. I I believe people are getting a different perception of where we came from. Yeah, what's happening out there right now is, if I could just interrupt her, because you bring up people are reevaluating that is so true, and, and I don't see it as a bad thing. But people are looking at the differences now. They're going, well, I've been religious, but am I spiritual? I've had people kind of coming. I've had even ministers coming to me, and they go, well, I, I, I'm a religious person, but I really want to be spiritual. They finally realized that there's 
there's really two paths there. There is a religious Oh, path. yeah. You do all uh-huh. this stuff out front, and you attend church, and you got a social life in the church, and you do good works with the group, and you and, and you got a dogma, and you got, I mean, everything, ceremonies, everything else. That's, and you can quote holy books. And then there's a spiritual path, which is truly the inner path, and it's got nothing to do necessarily with the outer. Now, if you could do both paths, that's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's nice to belong to an organization or a group. I, I, I really see good things coming out of that if, if it's a compatible group with your beliefs. But as with most people, what's happening right now, people are changing. They may start off believing one way, uh, and then when they become a teenager, maybe they start to change. They go to college. They look at things different. time they're 30, they're thinking different. A truly evolving open soul may have many pathways. You know, he's not going to stay in any particular, or she in any particular box. It's the person that never gets out of the original box. Uh-huh. Uh, limits their choices. They accept, this is a religion I was born into. This is the faith of my fathers, right? This this is the political party I was born into. This is the part of the country. And this is our belief system. Whatever it may be. I, I like to believe that I raised my kids to be totally independent, whatever they want to believe. Uh, and that means politics. That means religion. That means spiritual philosophy, whatever. I hope the same for my grandchildren. I don't want uh-huh. people to mimic. And my friends the same way. I, I have diverse friendships, all, all political walks of life, all spiritual walks of life, all, all religious walks of life. And, I, and my whole question is this, like when somebody knocks on my door, you know, that perpetual person at your door, you know, with the, handing out a religious brochure, I say, are you happy with what you got? They go, oh, yeah. And I go, great. So am I. Have a nice day, right? I'm happy with what I got. I'm glad you're happy with what you got. Great. And I meant that. I don't want to change them. I don't want to bring them in and give them a lecture and discussion. You can't debate religion. And, you, and we found out lately you can't even debate politics. It's like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that's <clears> – <throat> and, and I think that's, that's really what I'm seeing is, is that everybody has a different perception of where we come from, and they're all right. Yep. Yeah. No. It's, it's, here's the problem. The problem is when I have the only, my religion is the only truth. Uh, we are the chosen people. Everybody else yeah. is going to hell. Right? Uh, as soon as you start believing that your political party or your church or your group or your country is the only best uh, and the only answer, then you're going to have conflict. And that's the oh, yeah. world right now because you got religious groups out there that, you know, we've seen it, right? They take over the world. They take over, they take over big pieces of the country. They want to kill people because they're not their religious belief, you know? It's like, wow. So um, I, I, I'm at peace right now with where I'm at, and I'll guarantee you that if I live another five years, I'm not going to be the same person, and if we have another interview, I'm going to be totally changed. I'm, I'm oh, not yeah. the same person I was five years ago, so it's evolving door. When when I got to a place where where my total focus was on the spiritual, 
I believed um I I had I had of course a spiritual perception of of everything and I tell people today, you know, I can tell you what my belief system is today, but check with me tomorrow cuz it will be different. It's it's what, what, constantly you know, yeah, it's constantly yeah. changing. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly going in directions that I had never even thought about. But, you know, suddenly I'll wake up in the middle of the night and say, huh, you know, I think I, I think that there's another level to this. It's like an onion. Every time you think you, you know, have it down to the core, you know, there's another level. And happily, there's always another level. There's always another way to, to, to perceive things. And I think that's what keeps people young, uh, the fact that they're still growing, they're still, they're still going deeper inside and outside so that, so that it, they change. Um, I, I have often thought that every decade I became a new person, and I, I, it's almost every five years that's happening now. So, I, and I, I would like for people to feel the freedom to do that, to not feel locked into a dogma or or what. I mean, a, a religion is fine and wonderful, but but spiritually speaking, you can, you can go in lots of different directions and and not compromise a religious perception. No, I, I, ha- I have this rule, because I'm a guest speaker, a guest minister at churches all over the, all over the, all over the world, actually. Uh, and I go in, and first off, I have this rule, respect what you go into. In other words, uh-huh. I don't give us or a belief system that's going to be 180 degrees of belief. So if I speak at a Catholic church, you know, to a group at, at a... At one of their weekly meetings or somewhere, they bring in the senior citizens. For here, there's a group that came in. You know, there's a few hundred of them. They meet during the week and they talk about philosophical, spiritual stuff. I'm not going to talk about karma. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about gurus. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about you know any of that crazy stuff. But I will give them some beautiful stories. Like one of the stories I give them since since you know we're just kind of rolling along here. Uh, this is this is my one of my go-to kind of stories. I like to tell these, what I call chicken soup of the soul type stories. There was this day, I, I, I only been out rafting a few times. And I live right here in, close by Sacramento where the American River, you know, and the Sacramento River come right through Sacramento and everybody rafts. If you live around here, you, you go rafting. You know, it's a big deal, right? Well, I, I'm an Irish guy. And so I, I'm very sensitive to the sun. If I go rafting, I get burnt really bad. So I'm, <laughs> anyway, some friends came to visit and, this, and randomly, oh, we want to go rafting. So, okay, so we go get a raft. We're going down American River, summertime, and we randomly pull over to the beach along the, along the way down, and, and I see a crowd of people looking out in the water. And I realized they're looking at a body that's underwater, and nobody's oh going gosh. out. So I'm running down the beach. And, you know, I'm not exactly a young guy, but I'm running down the beach, and I get there just as a couple people decide to pull this this 17 year old boy out, and they drag him out, and they lay him on the sand. They get there, he's laying on the sand, 
nobody doing CPR. Nobody's doing, you know, pushing on his heart. Nobody's all standing there looking at me. And so, so I approach, and there's a whole group of young, there must be 50 young people. And I look up at the parking lot as I'm running there, and I see that there's a bus, you know, the first Baptist church of San Jose, or something, you know, they come up. And I'm going, great, look at nobody's. Anyways, the guy's laying there. And I, and I, there's no pulse, no breath. He is beyond blue. He's that great. I mean, just be honest with you, he was under water six, six, seven, eight minutes. That's a long time. And he's yeah. been laying on the beach about a minute when I got there, like a minute, maybe two. So I immediately started mouth to mouth station. And, uh, and I knew, I knew this guy, I knew I was, I just knew it. I'm a former lifeguard. You know, I, I, I had to be trained. I had to be the only person on that beach, apparently, that had life. I was in the Army. So it was like, I was an expert, right? I'm the subject expert. So I'm on this uh-huh. guy, and I, I just keep going and going. And pretty soon he, he blew, he, you know, I don't know if you ever given anybody mouth to mouth when they try to but they explode, they vomit all over you. I mean, it's just, you know, in my beard, my face, yeah. everything. But I was happy. I cleaned it off, gave him some more money. And when he finally gets up, 17 years old, and he's kind of standing. And when he's breathing, I could hear I could hear the, the, the feeling of water in his lungs still. So I was telling him, you better go to the doctor and everything. And then I'm looking at this young, beautiful teenage girl. It's like about 16, 17. And I said, what's the matter with you? Your friend laying here on the beach dead, and you guys aren't doing anything. Nothing at all except look down at the sand. What's wrong with you? And she looks at me and she goes, well, mister, we weren't doing nothing. I said, yes, you were. You weren't doing anything. She says, we were all praying that Jesus would send an expert. Somebody knew what he was doing to save our friend. (laughs) And and I'm going, what? What? (laughs) What? What she says, and she, she looked at me again, and you came. So then I humbly walked away. <laughs> so there was my arrogance, right? I was condemning all these young people, and none of them knew what to do. So what did they do? They prayed. So when I tell a story like that, now think about that. I tell a story like that, whether it's a Catholic church, Lutheran church. Buddhist church makes no difference. Everybody can relate to that, right? Oh, so, yeah. That's a beautiful thing. So then when I go talk to a Hindu group or I, or I, or I talk to uh, an Indian group or a Buddhist group or something, I'll tell them the story about how I helped this guy on the highway along the Ganges River on this highway uh, that right by the, the river. That was uh, dead. Anyway, we're, we're, we're bumper to bumper traffic by the Ganges, and uh, nothing's moving. And at, just in front of us is uh, a tractor that is pulling a, a, a trailer full of vegetables. I don't know, beets, onions, right? I don't remember what it was. It could have been beets. And on top of this trailer, on top of this food, is a bunch of villagers. So in India, the farmer's going to drive this stuff to the market, so people will hitch a ride for a full amount of money, right? And they just ride a 
passenger part. And I'm looking at the old guy. He's looking at me. I'm inside a car with a driver, and we're having eye-to-eye contact. And I'm just looking at him, and it was kind of a confusion. And all of a sudden, our lane is dead stop. A bus is passing in the wrong lane going down the road facing traffic, right? About 40 miles an hour. The bus all of a sudden realizes there's a truck coming at him. And he turns the bus right into the tractor. And the tractor flips over. And the trailer bounces this guy up in the air, this old man. And I mean that literally was this grungy old guy. And he flips in the air and he lands just smack. The sound was the most horrible sound you could hear. Picture somebody falling like off a two-story house onto asphalt, right? It was just splat. And he's laying there. His eyes are open, but they're not. I jump out of the vehicle. Meanwhile, the bus, the guy, the driver, being an Indian, he's going to make a getaway, right? He backs up, pulls out. He makes a getaway. The bus driver drives away. Run, right? Even though he has a whole bunch full of people as witness, right? I come out and I go over to the guy. And he's not breathing. There is no pulp. His neck is kind of loosey, loosey, loosey. His his body is it's like he's got everything. And, and his but his eyes are just kind of and he's looking at me. And so I take off my coat. And I, I just nudge it under the nape of his uh, uh, half of his neck, and, and he'd take a bottle of water, and I just kind of clean his face. And I'm looking at him, straight love within me, straight love. I thought about mouth to mouth resuscitation because I could do that, and also you know doing the chest, you know. But his body's all uh-huh. broken up, and I didn't want to keep push on his chest. And this part of India, or during this time period, AIDS and all kinds of other tuberculosis and all kinds of other diseases were running rampant. Uh, yeah. So I'm doing mouth-to-mouth with this guy. I'm endangering my health, which would affect my wife and my children and, and my future and everything. Else. Do, I have a, do I have a right to endanger my future with my family by trying to save this old guy with mouth-to-mouth? So... The inner thing was, no, but give him love. So I took my hand, uh, my right hand on his heart, and I put my left hand uh, on, the, on his forehead, you know, the spiritual eye and my fingers up on the crown chakra. Yeah. And I, pray, and I prayed, and I visualized light, love, and energy coming through the top of my head, through my spine, and out fingertips in my hands. And I just visualized that. It was like electricity. It was like vibrant vibrations. It was like like somebody turned on a current. And I just kept doing that, kept doing that, and kept doing that. And pretty soon, the guy blinked. He was blinking, and he was looking at me. <laughs> so he came out of a total death zone. And somebody could say, well, maybe he was just really unconscious. Okay, whatever. But I didn't feel a pulse. I didn't see him breathing. didn't see his chest going up and down. And his eyes were wide open, not moving. I've never seen anybody in it unconscious with their eyes wide open, not moving. I mean, that's kind of unique, right? 
He was dead. I know he was dead. A couple people yeah. were watching that. And they were like, oh, wow, what's going on here, right? So I'm giving him love. And there was this connection made between me and him. It was just a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so at the same time, all of a sudden I hear a big commotion in the crowd. And in India, they have something called <clears throat> community justice, which means the people in the town will take care of you. You've done something wrong. Don't wait for the cops, right? Down the road, uh-huh. a bunch of people had stopped that bus, dragged the driver off the bus, and brought him all the way back to this they thought they were going to find a dead guy. And uh, while they were dragging him down, there were people, everybody in the crowd, hundreds of people were beating him up. And so <laughs> I got up, I got up, and that, no matter the fact that this guy did this damage and ran away, I was empathetic to him. And so I ran into this mob of people, and my driver is chasing me, going, you're crazy, don't, don't, don't. And I go in there. And I start pulling everybody away from this guy, and there's fists flying all over the place. And I'm pleading with this mob. I said, don't hurt him. And then all of a sudden, I feel two arms wrapped around me, and it's my driver <laughs> pulling me away. No, no, you don't understand. Community justice, you're going to get hurt, right? As I'm praying for God to help this guy, a police officer with a with an automatic weapon comes running, blowing a whistle. And, and the guy's pleading, please arrest me. Please arrest me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but the guy was a bloody mess. So there I was in a situation where I had empathy and love, and this guy appeared to be risen from the dead. People could argue with it. There's no doctor declared him dead. I declared him dead. I'm looking at him. To me, if there's no pulse and there's no breath and the guys are wide open and they're not moving and not blinking, uh, he's dead. All right? Yeah. And maybe. And then my heart went out to him, but then my heart went out to the perpetrator. So it was like, it was a big, huge lesson. So that's the story I give when I go into a group that's more into that, right? Because then there's that whole philosophy of the East and all that kind of stuff. So one has to pick and choose the audience. So you don't, you don't go into kindergarten class and start talking about college stuff, right? And, and you don't go into into a, a group that believes in whatever they believe in and start talking about something. So there's always common ground. And I found that my stories about peace, love, healing, and forgiveness always resonate with no matter what audience I'm with. I've given talks to prisoners. Uh, I was a volunteer chaplain at Folsom Prison. You know, Johnny Cash going Folsom Prison, right? So right. Folsom toughest prisons in California. And I had, uh, I, I would go in there with guys that were lifers. Nobody was coming out. I mean, they were, you know, they were 25 years or longer. And the guys that had 25 okay. years were already 50, 60 years old. Nobody's, nobody's walking out of there. So you're not going to change them that way. I had to, I had to go in there. And with that group, I'm not going to talk great philosophical stories. I'm going to talk about thou shall not knife to death your cellmate. Not a good idea, right? <laughs> thou shall not <laughs> But what I found, and I, and I dealt with serial killers, child rapers, molesters, some of the most deviant people that you ever met, and then unnecessarily repentant. 
Well, when I met him and talked to him in small groups or, or a group alone, isolated from the guards and everything, I wasn't a threat to them. They would open up to me. You know, I'm only five foot six, you know, I'm just a little guy, you know, 150 pounds. They don't worry about me. It wasn't a big macho thing. I was never going to macho these guys, right? But uh-huh. they could feel that. Open up and they'd tell you stories about their childhood. And when you hear their stories from childhood, you go, my God, this guy was being raised to be a serial killer. I mean, the examples of his family and how they treated him and the ideas in his head. But then again, we'll go back to Carmen. You manifest that. He got what he manifested and became what was to become of him. But it was still, in my heart, I saw them all as small children. And there's one guy who killed seven women, you know, and he did heinous things. I mean, it was brutal stuff. I prayed for him. I wished him well. I had great compassion for him. Because I knew the great suffering that was going to come to him. I mean, look what he's got to pay back. I don't wish that on anybody. So, uh, so in in Folsom, I told a little, a little simpler, simpler stories, right? But <clears throat> anyway, that's kind of my life. It's it's all about love. It's all about service. And depending on which blog or I write in or what uh, podcast I do or radio show or television interview or what group I talk to, I never have the same conversation with anybody. There's some stories that people want to hear that come up and and I I don't really like to do repetitive stories, but there are because some stories just have a a good message and that audience hasn't heard it. But uh, all in all, life is about giving. And so when this thing is over, and who knows when that'll be. Uh, I, I hope that I've done that. I hope I've given more than I've gotten. And you know, because you said something earlier that you're doing all these things for people and you feel great, right? There's, it's, the most oh, yeah. selfish, it's the most selfish thing you can do to help others, to give love to others. Because it's really selfish because it's a never-ending gift to yourself. It's like, it's absolutely. come on. Don't make me feel good for this. Don't give me anything for this. But you're doing stuff out there, and no matter what you try to do not to get anything back, it comes back at you. Whatever you give oh, yeah. out to the universe comes back. You know that. Examples in your own life, right? You know that. And I think the thing is, I, I've I've learned that you know when when somebody offers um, something in return for something that I've done, you know, I will say. No, that's not necessary once. And then I let it go. I figure, all right, if they're going to insist, I'm going to, you know, not deprive them of the pleasure of giving. <laughs> oh, no, no. That's a lesson I had to learn because I was, one of my many times I was sick. I mean, I'm always there for everybody else. Hospital visits, prayers, hands-on, whatever, you know. But, like, mm-hmm. I, I was like, well, I, I, I don't need it, I, you know. And then somebody Maybe, maybe it was one of my grandkids or somebody. Somebody said something to me at the time that just really rang true. It was like, uh, are you too good, Bill, to uh, let others feel good about helping you? Are you stopping mm. the chain? Are, are you stopping the flow of energy? <clears throat> if you don't allow others to gift you whatever they want to gift you, if you always turn down every gift, you turn down every thank you, you never allow anybody to reach out and assist you 
then you are stopping them from having good karma. How dare you? You know, yeah. you could get good helping them, but you're not letting them. So that was a real wake-up call about 1990-something. I think it was 1998. And it was like, I started rethinking that. I said, wow, this is all about allowing others. So now if I'm sick or something and somebody wants to minister to me, great. They send me a goodwill, great. Thank you. If, they, if, if somebody comes yeah. to visit me and they give me a gift, before I, I don't, now I just go, thank you. Thank you. All right? I had I had somebody who um, came for a reading and she had been a regular person and and she didn't she didn't pay me and yeah I reminded her a couple times she didn't pay me and I just let it go and two years later she called back and she said um, are you mad at me and I said why and she said well I didn't pay you and I ignored you and I said no I wasn't mad. I was more disappointed, and she said, why? I said, well, you deprived me of the privilege of (laughs) being generous. (laughs) And she said, really? I said, don't take it to heart until you have to do it again. But, but. Yeah, I I, that 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 actually got down to the bottom line. It it wasn't that you didn't pay when you said you were going to. That that that's okay. But but you, I didn't have the chance to be benevolent. I didn't have the chance to say it's okay. You know, if you can, when you can, do it. If you can't, that's okay too. And I I said, um. I it, I would have more appreciated you just being honest with me, because more likely than not, I would have said, "Don't worry about it." And yeah, um, we both been, I le- we both. Yeah, it's uh. Go ahead. You know, here's here's. I, I used to. Uh, I, I help people, you know, and if somebody offers, in the old days, somebody you look at, I got nothing, nothing, and then and then I then I got a call from a guy that's uh. His name is well known in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood with the A-listers, you know, for the movie stars. He's like the go-to psychiatrist. Uh-huh. He calls me, right? So he, he called him a couple of years ago, and he's about two, three hours on the phone. I'm helping him with his problems and stuff, and he goes, "What I owe you?" I go, "I don't normally charge people." And he says, he "says Okay, I'm going to give you a gift." I go, "What?" He says. I charge $1,500 an hour. You just spent two and a half hours with me. He says, now think about that. The people that I do it for, they listen to what I tell them because they paid so much money to hear it. They, they got it. They, they don't want to waste <laughs> You gave me free advice. He says, like you give all these people free advice. How much do they value it? How much do they, are they going to really take and do something with? He says, he says, great. He says, but my advice to you in the future is somebody offers you a gift, take it. So that was interesting. Yeah. He charged hundred bucks an hour, and he tells me afterwards, he says, after I give him all the free stuff, right, I charge 1500 an hour, right? So oh. it's it's not money, he told me. It's not about the money. It's the fact that if, if people get stuff for free, they value it at the same level. So so you charge a person. It's a poor person. You may charge them a dollar. A person that's got mm-hmm. a, a billionaire, you charge them a thousand bucks. You know, it's, it's, it's it doesn't matter. But there has to be some value placed on your services, even if it's just 
they go out and do a good deed for somebody else. Because sometimes people, I do something, they think I've nothing to give me, you know, and I don't expect it. And I always tell them, today, this week, you go do a good deed in my name and then tell me what it was. And you honor me that way. And so they'll come back and say, there was this homeless guy and I, I fed him, made him a sandwich, or, you know, I, I helped this, the, the clerk at the store was having a bad day and I, I smiled and wished him well. Whatever it was, right? Big or small. Uh-huh. We can always gift people something. There was a, yeah, something that somebody... It's that, it's that pay it forward thing, too, you know? That works. So, that works. But it's... Sometimes. Uh, life, life is good. It's always good. Sometimes it's better, and sometimes it's even better than better. It's excellent. So there's all these degrees. People will ask me, well, how are you? I said, I'm always good. They go, wait a minute. You always say that. You're always good. I go, yeah. Well, I, didn't you just have a heart attack two days ago? I go, yeah, but I'm good. I didn't die. You know? <laughs> so uh, then, I, then, I, then I, once in a while, I'd say, if I was any better, I'd be you. That always cracks them up. And it's like, I mean, if any better, I'd be you. We're all we. We're all us. So that's where we're at. I think, so, uh, yeah, I, I think we're we're at a point in time here where I, I, it, 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 it is my feeling that people need to hear stories like yours. They need to hear the fact that that just being great and wonderful, you know, it, it, it's it's you create your perception, you create your reality by your perception of it. And if if you tell people you're great, and you believe what you're saying, then you become great. You know, you may you may have aches and pains, and you may have you know arthritis here and there, and you may have a, a lot of other stuff. But you know, I'm I'm awake and functional, and uh, semi-functional there, surely. And uh, you know, it, it's sort of like you you it you you become what you put out there. And and if you always have a problem, if you always have an issue, if you if there's always something wrong, then then that's what you become, and you you know you can you can tell yourself, you know, I'm miserable and I hurt and I'm this and I'm that, and 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 then you reinforce it, and then then it becomes worse and worse. So it, it's a matter of I I I am great, I am wonderful, I am you know full of full of all sorts of cool stuff, and. I think that's in many ways what what keeps people young and healthy and functional because you know they're they're celebrating life they're not surviving it. That's why I, I, people come to me in their last stages of their life, and oh my God, I got I got six months left to live. I'm going then live it. <clears throat> I go to these funerals and they go so and so was so brave. They went everywhere around the world. They spent. Fifty thousand dollars trying to find a cure. They did. What a brave person! They wouldn't give up. That. And I go, what? How about just accepting what you got? Sometimes you take the normal stuff you got to do. But to me, if you spent your last three years, the whole time focused on your health issue, right? Uh-huh. And and going everywhere looking for a cure and saying, well, you know, this is my karma. Uh, I'll do what the doctors tell me to do. I'll take the reasonable course of action, but. When I'm not with the doctor, I'm not thinking about my disease. When I'm not taking my medicine, I'm not thinking about the disease. I'm living my life. Because everybody around you, I've seen people like this, 
every day is talking about their health, what they're going to do. They're focused on it. They're online looking for cures. They're going to go see this miracle healer. They're going to do this. Just live your life. You're given all those days, you know, take them. Yeah. Live with them. Right. So nothing, nothing's worse than not living life fully. It's like, well, I got, I'm going to die in three years. I'm going to die in six months. I said, no, wait a minute. I could die in an hour from now. You, nobody knows, right? Come on. No. You, you know, you may outlive your family. You don't know. I just had a veteran friend, and three years ago, I think it was three years ago, I went to visit him at uh, the facility he was in, and he was happy-go-lucky and you know, good spirits, but he's going, yeah, my doctors told me I had uh, 90 days or less because it's reached this level. And we went on talking, uh-huh. and that was all he's 90 days or less. He just died two weeks ago. <laughs> Three years. Come on, right? People are going, wait a minute. What, what, was he, what, was, what was he doing? You don't want to ask the guy, hey, come on, when are you going to die? Come on. You know, but seriously, the guy was living his life. You go, well, I got 90 days. Let's, let's live 90 days, right? And then he just kept going every day after that as a gift. And he, and, and a it, lot. And he didn't any great pain. So it was like good. Uh, a long time ago, and this has to be. Oh God, this is this is embarrassing. It had to be fifty years or so ago. Um, I I came down with uh, with uh, ulcerative colitis, and they took me aside and they said, "This is very serious. You're going to die of this." And at the time, I wasn't into the spirituality and stuff like that to the degree that I'm in now. And the comment that came out of my mouth to this day amazes me. I looked at them and I said, I don't have time to die. And, you know, they looked at me and said, you, you, did you hear us? And I said, yeah, I just don't have time for that. I'll, I'll do that some other time. And I, I, I know they thought I was crazy. And, and to be honest with you, I did too, because that coming out of my mouth when someone tells you you're going to die and you just say, I don't have time to die. I got too much to do. And, you know, I'm still here. And, and I don't have ulcerative colitis. So um, that's a sport. You're still here, right? So we can, everybody listening to this, she didn't die. No. <laughs> So, what, what's interesting is uh, that trip I made to England. When I came back uh, and landed in Florida, I was deathly ill. I actually got pneumonia, double pneumonia. I was having heart problems. I I had pink eye in both eyes. I had <laughs> uh, 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 what's that throat? Strep throat. I had inflamed stomach. I had some kind of virus in the stomach or bacteria or something. And I had two ear infections and heart problems. So when I got off the airplane at uh, Orlando, I had blood coming out of the ears, blood coming, the tears coming out, uh, bloody nose. That scares somebody on an airline, right? It's like, where have you been? Africa? Ebola? What's going on here, right? So I end up going to the, the VA in Orlando, and then they took me in an ambulance. They took me to another hospital. Anyway, so I'm, I'm in this hospital, and they go, 
we're going to do a heart procedure on you tomorrow, and we're going to do this in isolation. And the night before the heart procedure, this July 2016, this friend of mine who is a uh, uh, Vedic astrologer, and he's like, I would say, one of the top top dozen or two in the world. I mean, the guy's really good. He does gurus. He does all these people, and celebrities and everybody else. And he knows his stuff, right? So uh-huh. he calls me up and he goes, Bill. I mean, like that, you know, Bill, this is like, I'm going to have the procedure done like at six o'clock in the morning. And he's calling me up at eight o'clock the night, you know, the night before, right? Friday night or whatever it was. And he goes, don't let him operate on you tomorrow. I just looked at your chart. He says, out of all the, things in your chart and he's done my chart he said this is the absolute worst day of your entire life in fact this looks like this is your death day it's predicted here it is and my death was predicted actually by other astrologers as well including a naughty palm reading and so yeah that sounded real and he, and he showed me and told me this was in line you know when the seventh house is in line with Mars you know and Jupiter uh-huh. got, you know I'm sorry into here but when all these things are yeah. lined up, this is what happened. Right? I'm going, I ain't dying tomorrow. I go, what do you mean? I said, there's people I still have to help. There's still people that I've seen in visions, and they haven't come into my life yet. And so it's not going to happen. Don't let them outreach on you tomorrow. So, spoiler alert, I didn't die either. So both of us didn't die on them. So there you go. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm telling you, if you, if you, it's, if you accept things as Sometimes that, by virtue, makes it what it is. When you're told you got six months, and, you, and I've had friends, you got six months to live. You know what? Five and a half, six months comes, they're dead. Not seven oh, yeah. months. Not, it's, it's right around six months. They die. That's it. They accept it as fact. But by the same token, if it's your time and you can accept that, that's all right. It's your time. Okay, great. You know, that's my time. It is. We have tattooed to our spiritual eye someplace in there like a milk carton due date best used by right expires at we get these <laughs> explanations and and though we may think we know people may tell us they know that's when it's going to happen now i do believe that uh certain circumstances you could be given a reprieve whatever but even those things aren't accidental even those things are kind of, God must know about that ahead of time, right? Well, we'll take them here, but then we got to let them go. I mean, you know, come on. What's not known? So that was my uh, my experience with that. But I, I've had 12 major heart attacks, 12 major <laughs> heart attacks. I got eight, nine, I don't know. I got at least eight stents, heart stents. I got quadruple bypass surgery, open heart surgery. I've been blown up by a rocket. I've been in eight helicopter crashes. Eight? Six or eight? Who, who knows? Who, who counts at this stage? Anyway, at least six, at least half a dozen. might have been more. I, I've been shot. Uh, I, I've been in motorcycle crashes, car crashes. I've fallen off my two-story house twice. Any idiot could do it once, but it takes a real guy to do it twice and survive. I mean, everything that could happen, happens. And I'm trying to tell you, when it's your time, it's your time. I've had three near-death experiences. I've had all kinds of other experiences. And it's always like, this is interesting. When I survive this, this will be a good story. 
And I'm laying there. I'm blown up, laying on the floor in Vietnam, and I got a little bit of blood on my forehead, and and I'm unconscious. I just wake up, and I'm going, damn, this is a good story when I get home. I mean, you know, how many people get blown up through the air and land on a cement floor? Come on. That's that's story time, especially for an Irishman. I mean, I can milk that forever, right? So And will. uh, And will, right? But you take what life gives you, but you have to realize you don't have – control of others so if we're in a world where we're not alone uh although we could be lonely but you're not alone and you're Uh surrounded by other people with their free will and somebody with their free will may want to do harm to to all of us and we live in a country and we have we have to realize that what happens in this country nationwide is a group karma we're suffering the karma for the united states for our history for whatever We've brought about all these things happening to us, be it our earthquake, hurricanes, forest fires, riots, injustice, whatever. It's a group karma. You you have the privilege of being born in this most wonderful, beautiful country, and I love it. You have the honor this lifetime being born here, but you have to pick up the, the other baggage too. So whatever country uh-huh. you're born in, you also get that. And so the world right now is going through some world karma, but I'm looking at things thinking – as bad as things look, go back 100 years. Look at that flu and World War I and all the stuff that was happening and they had a the big depression. This is cyclic, but you notice it's better than it was. Right? So things are cycling, but it's still going uphill. It's still going closer to the light. And this present virus that we have God help us, it's deadly, it's dangerous. I mean, anybody can get it, as we can see. Oh, yeah. But, but, it could have been much worse. There is a greater disease, what I call plague, because I have no idea what it is, but there's a greater one coming in the next decade or two. This dress rehearsal that we have for what's going on worldwide now is preparing us because we're going to learn what worked, what didn't work. You know, did Sweden do the right thing, you know, by just doing nothing? Did Uh did another country that China locked down totally the extreme thing? And is that the best thing when you consider everything like humanitarian rights and everything else? So what was in between? What worked for England? What worked for Somebody, when this thing is over, is going to have to sit down and say, no politics here. Let's just look at facts. What worked? What worked? And this works, but did it destroy the economy and people's lives? Can we do it differently? Can we do this? Can everybody just mask up and distance and still keep stuff open? That's a question we never really explored. So there's a lot of things. And unfortunately, we're, we're learning them the hard way. But the good news, and I'll throw that back out there, the good news is there's enough varied ways that we're handling this around the world that somebody's going to really be able to take the stuff, put it on a computer, put it in a think tank, and people are going to say, this kind of worked, this kind of worked, and maybe we can come up with a better design because when the big one comes, and it's not if, it's when the big one comes, Uh we're going to be better prepared. You certainly don't do stuff three or four months into the thing and people are getting sick. You do something when it first appears, 
and you shut, you know, I mean, if China would have shut down their airlines and kept everybody from coming or going, uh, there'd been no worldwide pandemic, right? All right. Right. So we have to learn from. So wherever this thing starts, you got to bottle it up. So I'm looking at the well, world thinking. Well, well, didn't we well, have? I mean, there was there was the what was it the swine nineteen um, eighteen that that flu ep- epidemic. I know my grandmother yep. almost died in that one. I had the Hong Kong I, flu. I I I almost died then. And you know, yep. you know there there have there have been things that have swept the globe before. Um, and the, and the, the news is this: there always will be. Uh, yeah. This, this is humanity. That's why when Christopher Columbus and Captain Cook and all these Magellan and all these great explorers met new civilizations, their populations all decreased from millions, right? Over a million or two Hawaiians, right? Polynesians, oh. down to oh, yeah. right? Disease. Between yeah, between smallpox and syphilis, you know, yeah. they wiped so, out a lot. So between what what we've done to cultures on this earth that have been isolated, uh, it's evident. Now we're no longer isolated. Every community in the world, every village in the world, I don't care. I don't care if it's in the Congo, if it's in the if it's in the Amazon. I don't care if it's in in Belize or if it's in Europe, or in Nebraska, it makes no difference. Everybody's connected by air traffic and air travelers. Two or three days of several million people traveling around the world, everything's spread, right? And, right. and you go visit, you come back. So there's no more borders against disease. So we have to look for better ways to handle it. Anyway, Forgetting that, because that's crazy and everybody gets enough of that on the news. I'm just telling people <laughs> bad thing to happen, even though for 300,000 people, which I believe will be the number by the end of this year, dead in America, 300,000, uh, it could have been worse. So that's like, is it half full or half empty? And that's not any solace to those people who lost people or those people presently with it. But I'm thinking... In the next 20 or 30 years, unfortunately, California is one of those places that life is not going to be better. No. We, got some, we, got, we got some issues here in California. Uh, people don't realize how bad droughts are in, in California and the rain, lack of rain, and it's only getting periodically worse. And we haven't even talked about earthquakes yet and all the rest of stuff. So thing is, if you focus on that negative, it makes it ruins your, your present moment and it ruins your present well, it's, life. It's it's not really um, you know you you look at things like that, like volcanoes, like earthquakes. I mean, earthquakes is is the earth shaking things up. Um, unfortunately, if you build in the wrong place, you know it's 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 not the wisest thing. Um, I for the last I don't know eight or nine years have been been really conscious of the fact that that the new New Madrid fault line is going to erupt again. So what do I do? I move from 
the East Coast to right, right around the fringe of where the new Mid- Medford line is. So, um, you know, I and, and I truly believe it's it's. I know it's rumbling. I know it's getting ready to 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 let loose again. And and the only thing that that. The only thing that stops it from erupting is that I predict that it's going to. So every year I predict that it's going to, and it doesn't. So everybody can be, thank me. Thank me because I, you know, I've been very accurate on a lot of things, but I think I'm preventing the new Madrid line from going off by predicting it's going to. Well, eventually somebody's going to be right about the big one in California, too. Yeah. I, I, I don't I don't see the big danger, a big one in California. I see the danger being multiple series of small ones, which destroy overpasses and infrastructure, freeways, stuff like that. And uh-huh. with, the, with the economics of California, we're bankrupt fighting these fires. We're bankrupt taking care of the homeless. We're bankrupt taking care of this virus. We're not in good shape. So economically, it's not going to take much to bring down this great economy. That's what I'm really talking about, economy. And when you kill the economy of, of a state or a country, and in essence, you're basically killing the country. So people keep looking for these great disasters. I said, no, no, no. It's all about economics. You know, because you, you could survive a hurricane and come back to rebuild it. You know, 10 years, you don't know. But if oh, you yeah. destroy the economy, the economy is decades long, and, and you do much more damage. So, but me and you are, we're okay. <laughs> we're living in, you know, so I, you know I'm, I'm living, I'm living a dream to be honest with you. I was fortunate enough in my forties to have a car accident. And so I had to retire from school teaching early and go into the metaphysical full time. So, you know, while, well, at the time, it, it appeared to everybody, you know, oh, my God, she's lost everything. I gained everything. And it was it was a blessing. It was just the best thing that could have happened to me. Um, I, I was, you know, 25 years of teaching special education. Uh, I, I tell everyone, um, it, it, it equipped me and, and provided me with the expertise to deal with adults on a <laughs> on a better level so um it it was uh it, it was a great experience i mean going through it wasn't so much fun and and you know i i you know i yeah my neck got screwed up my back got screwed up but but it's not a big deal and it meant that i could do what i love full time so um you know, and and if you talk to me going through the struggle of the whole thing and lawsuits and everything, you know, that wasn't fun. But but um, I I gained a different perspective on on life. I mean, I had vertigo. Um, I still do, but not as bad. And 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 at at the time, I mean, I ended up on the floor more than any place else, and that's without drinking. And um, I once said to my mother as I was on the floor. I said, you know, I'm going to call carpet companies. And she said, why? And I said, you know, I'm down here. I might as well inspect pile. And, you know, she just looked at me like I was crazy. And it was because, because 
my career as far as a teacher was gone. I could no longer teach, and, you know, there were so many things that I couldn't do. But um, I got to the point where I looked upon it as a gift instead of uh, a challenge. It was a gift, and there's a reason this happened, and it's a good reason, and let's find it because it'll be more fun when I find it. But it was there was there was a lot of struggle in there, and you know I I look back on it and and I say it was a gift and it was a fortunate experience and I, going through it it wasn't fun, going through it it was miserable, <laughs> but in retrospect I see that it, it got me to a place that I wouldn't trade for the world. It well, that's like me. People read my books, they, they listen to my videos. My God, all this happened to you, you know? And I'm going, yeah. I don't give it a second thought. It's like all that was, all that made me who I am today, and I'm happy about that. Speaking well, of happy, you want you want you want a couple of lighthearted uh, grandchildren stories? Oh, um, sure. I got I got six grandchildren, but my, my two youngest, Delana and Gianni. Uh, very spiritually blessed with gifts. They really, truly are. And, uh, and they're a delight to be around them. They were little, like, uh, I guess Johnny was about three years old and Delana was, you know, a year and a half older. And they were out in my backyard. I got, a, I got a swing, one swing. And they were out there swinging on it. And uh, Delana was on it. And Johnny's on this swing, swinging. And he doesn't want to get off. He goes, no, I'm on here. She goes, no, give me a turn. Give me a turn. Now, this is a beautiful, sunshiny day. There's not a cloud in the sky. Everything's nice. I'm sitting out there watching them, right? And she looks at him. She folds her arm, and with all determination, she looks at him and says, if you don't give up that swing and give me a turn, I'm going to steal your shadow. Because he was swinging on this thing, chasing the shadow. You know, the shadow falling on the, in the sun, you know, on the swing. Just I'm gonna steal yeah. your shadow. No, no. And just then, a cloud appeared out of middle of nowhere, a little tiny black one, pots in front of the sun. Within seconds of her saying that, his shadow disappears because the sun is clouded and there is no sunshine to make a shadow. And uh-huh. he starts screaming, "Oh, Grandpa! They all stole my shadow!" <laughs> I looked up and I never saw the cloud before. There was, and I go, Daylon. So I laughed. I tried to explain to him, right? And then the cloud moved away. I said, see, Johnny, the cloud moved away. But I had to ask myself, that timing was just so spot on. You got to go. Synchronistic, what made, yeah. What made her say, I'm going to steal your shadow? What made it, the timing, within seconds of her saying that and pronouncing that, it happened. So you kind of look at kids, you kind of go, wow. So then Gianni, he's a little guy, about a year or so later, uh, a bird flies into their sliding glass patio door. You know, birds do that every once in a while. They lose their navigation or reflection or something. It, it breaks yeah. its neck. It's down. Its neck is it's just flopped. I mean, it's broken neck. <clears throat> it's not moving. <clears throat> and... Uh, so Johnny opens up the door and he goes out there and calls his family out there and they're all looking at it, his dad and his mom and 
And Johnny goes, Dad. Oh, his, uh, oh, his mother goes, Johnny, let, let, let's pray for the bird. We'll ask uh, the guru to help bless the bird, right? This guru we know. Okay, so they asked the guru to bless it and all that kind of stuff. and Nothing happened. So Johnny goes, Dad, go get a glass of water. Why? He says, Dad, go get a glass of water. Here's a little three, four-year-old kid telling him, go get a glass of water. So Dad gets a glass of water, gives him a glass of water, and Johnny just pours it on the bird. Bird flaps its wings and flies away. (laughs) (laughs) What was going on there, right? What was going on there? So, um, so later on, we we met in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. We met this guru, and I had Johnny with me. And, and I said, Johnny, tell him the story about the bird. So he tells him the story. And, and then the guru looks at him and says, yes, I healed the bird, the guru says. And Johnny goes, no, I healed the bird. So this goes back and forth. He's taking credit for healing the bird, right? So finally okay. the guru says, okay, Johnny. He says, we both healed the bird. So Johnny goes, okay. Anyway, it's it's just the kind of child he is, and when things like this happen, it's just really unique. It's like when his the other grandfather died. In other words, I live three miles from his house. He sees me all the time. But he had another grandfather, his father's father, adopted father, lived uh, about 40 miles away. So he only saw him a few times a year, you know three or four times so he died and this is a few days after his, this is a little while after his funeral and everything and I'm I'm babysitting Johnny he's in my front room he's playing with his Legos taking his Legos trying to make a helicopter out of him and he tells me crap I'm trying to make this I'm trying to make a helicopter like the helicopter I flew in the war I go what war what helicopter you know when I was in the war so I just let it go, you know, because kids that age, you don't question it. Just let it go, right? You know, okay. Has yeah. memory, all right. So then he's playing, and all of a sudden, I'm trying to talk to him, and he's waving me off going, quiet, Grandpa, quiet. I'm listening to Grandpa. And I go, yeah, you're listening to me. You talk, I'm talking to you, man. I'm, talk, I'm trying to kid with him, right? And he shushes me up. He says, no, I'm listening to other Grandpa. And I said, well, what's he saying? And he stops, he listens, he says, he told me he loves me. And I said, you tell him you love him too. So he did. And then it was dead quiet in the house. And I'm going, wow, this kid's talking. I mean, because he, yeah. he kept looking at the ether someplace. I'm going, he's having a conversation, right? There's something going on here, right? So I thought, yeah. I got that message. And it's not just for him, because the kid believes that stuff. It's no problem. But I said, his wife. She's sitting there at home. She's dealing with this. On, on this particular day, she was home packing up boxes of, of his clothing and his shoes and all those items that you give to the goodwill when somebody passes away. And she was tearfully packing. She was crying all day because she's packing this stuff up. The, all remembrances of him are going to be out of the house, right? Right. And so I said, no, this is this, you're great. You're, she says, your other grandma has got to know so I called her up, and she told me what she was doing. She was crying still. And I said, well, let me tell you the story. And I told her the story. And I says, I'm passing this on to you because my feeling, my intuition is this was not for just for Johnny. This was meant to be passed on to you so you know he's okay. And then she broke down and cried. So 
children, and I point out just three little stories, there's many more, but children, their belief system is so much more open. And yet we as adults contaminate their belief system. First, we, we tell them, there's this fat old guy, and if you good, he's going to bring you toys. And if you're poor, I guess you weren't good because you didn't get anything, right? You got Santa Claus uh-huh. out there. And then you got the Easter Bunny that's laying plastic eggs with candy in them. Give me a break, right? And then you got a tooth fairy. If you lose a tooth, you put a tooth under their pillow, and you get money. Unless you're poor, of course, you get nothing. So we want them to believe that, and we play that game with them for years. But when a kid tells you they talk to a or they talk to their grandparents that are dead, we poop on. We tell them, oh, it's your imaginary friends or whatever, right? When I was taking care of, uh, I was at a, a camp, special needs camp, for adults with uh, mental disabilities. Uh, so there was people with different levels of ability there and everything. And this one, ki- this one kid, he wasn't a kid, he was like in his 40s or something, right? This, this, this one guy come up to me and he goes up to the nuns. It was run by the Catholic church. And he goes, uh, I saw an angel angel talked to me. And then there's an angel in the tree up there, this tree in the, where he was talking. Right. And the nuns and everybody, everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like placating them. Right. Yeah. Okay. You talk to angels, you know? And I go, no, if this, if this, if he says he talked to an angel, he's not a liar. These, these people don't lie. You know, when, they, when they're gifted with these with these emotional, mental, uh, uh, different abilities, they don't uh-huh. lie. Not, right? They're not trying to impress you. When they say something, it's just with a child's heart. And I said, no. If he says he saw it, he saw it, right? So the next day, we were inside this building. There's glass windows looking out at this tree. And this nun that was helping, she's taking a photo, and then she looks at her photo on her iPhone, and she goes, and she keeps blowing it up with her. You know, you take your fingers to make the picture bigger. And in the tree, there's an angel, like you have like an angel on a, on a Christmas tree. You know, it's just on a branch, right? She goes, what uh-huh. I said, that's it. You couldn't see it with the naked eye, but you could see it in the camera. And it was like the same tree that he said he saw an angel in, right? And he talked to this angel. Yeah. And I'm going, now, you got to believe. Well, maybe it's just reflection of the light. Everybody had a thousand excuses, right? When the camera picked up, we can't see it. I said, you don't believe. That's why you don't see it. So, Well, well that's, we, that's very true. Um, so, you know, after 25 years working with special ed kids, um, I call it magic. And, and, and I guess, you know, there are better words for it. But every now and then one of them would, would come out with something that was just so spiritually magical. It was unbelievable. And because I deal with this stuff, I, I had such amazingly wise and, and, and special conversations with these kids about things that, that most people would have, you know, said, hey, they're retarded. But they're not. No. And they're just they're just different. No, I found and, out, embarrassingly so, I found out to myself. Nobody else was embarrassed. I was alone thinking, I came to this camp, you know, it's 24-7 for a week, you know, with these people, you know, and help them. 
that's a, I'm there to help them. I'm there to serve them. I realized they'd given me so many gifts. They opened my eyes. I was precious. Oh, yeah. I thought, you know, they kind of all look the same. They're all the same. Same kind of everything. My God, they're like snowflakes. They're all different. They're all got so much love. There's so much innocence. It's refreshing yeah. to be people that are so innocent and they expect you to be truthful and they expect you to be honest with them and loving and I mean they just put it all in the line so one of the greatest gifts I ever got was serving that community and, and basically uh, to this day I'm grateful I've had the opportunity I'm not there this year because of the virus otherwise I'd go back to Florida and work with them but it was like beautiful beautiful people but it opened my eyes, realized that how many people and groups of people do we judge, you know, rightly, wrongly, our own mind, well, this this group thinks this way, this is, you got an image of people. And then when you're around them, you go, this is nothing that I expected. Nothing like it. And that, no, wonderful. They, they are magical. They are, they are so much fun. And if you have a sense of humor with them, um, it's it. I it was a privilege that that I you know that I had the opportunity to work with them for 25 years. And the only thing that ruined the experience was that schools decided that they had to um, have special. You know, they had to have everyone had to have an IEP and, and you had to do testing and you had to do this instead of just being able to be with them and, and work with them and teach them in whatever way worked for them. And um, it became so restrictive that, you know, when I had the car accident, I had to stop teaching. So that was a gift too, because it wasn't the, it, 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 it wasn't, fun because you couldn't flow with their energy and where it was taking you. Um, I, I remember one time we, I was talk, we were talking about Egypt and, and, and the pharaohs and what they believed as far as after death, where they would go, and there was meditation, and they, they wanted to know what meditation was, and you know I worked with them on that. And we meditated and, in the classroom, and um, there were just so many things you could do with them. Their questions took you into so many fabulous places that were educational for everybody that it was just, it, 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 it's a magical existence. And I went from being a special ed teacher to at this point in time being absolutely 100% against having them put in a special class. I truly believe they should be mixed in with the general population and people taught to be compassionate about people who are learning in a different way. We've isolated them to the point where people think that, uh uh-oh, special ed, as opposed to let's help them because we can. So. Well, that's why... If you look at at religious history, uh, uh-huh. all these sightings of Virgin Mary, it's not adults. It's always the children, right? Yeah. It's always the children. You have to have the heart and the spirit of a child to find God. So I always tell people, you're too intellectual in your pursuit of, of, of spiritual. You figure uh-huh. if you read books, you're 
you read books, you get nobody's ever got enlightened reading a book. I don't care how great a book <laughs> it is. Bible, Bhagavad Gita, uh, you know, the Quran, nothing. It, it, you know, you, you learn things, you get knowledge, but wisdom is a separate track. That's a whole separate thing. So you could take some very undereducated person. You know, a uh, poverty-stricken guy in some country, you know. But the person is spiritually enriched, you know. Doesn't understand all the high words and philosophies of all this. But boom, goes into a deep state of samadhi and doesn't even know what it is. or You know what I mean? So uh-huh. childlike is the key to enlightenment. I really do believe that. Uh, not childlike, silly, stupid, but open-hearted and trusting. In other words, thinking of the divine as the ultimate father-mother and let ourselves be this child and open up the heart chakra and open up everything. And um, There's this whole thing about if you don't see, if you don't believe it, you're never going to see it. And there's been yeah. all, kinds of, all kinds of studies done on that, of course, where uh, I, the one that was on TV the last five years was that show brain t- brain games where they took these people at UCLA this class and told them their their semester grade was going to be based on observation took them into a little auditorium they had a stage there was about 35 students or whatever had them sat down with a, with a pencil and, and a clipboard and their job was to watch these groups of dancers on the stage dance and count how many times they changed partners during this one piece of music and they were told, totally focus on this. Your grade depends on your power of observations, right? So they're thinking, I better count this. How many times this one moves here, there, you know, how many different partners there are. And so they watched the whole thing. It's over. And then the professor says, okay, how many think they got the right answer to what I'm, what I'm going to ask? And they all raised their hands. It was the 20 times, 15, whatever, right? He says, says, let me show you what really happened. He says, because you ain't going to believe it. He says, first off, he says, how many times did the guy in the gorilla suit come in and dance around all the different groups? And they all laughed. Ha, 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 ha. Nobody saw it. He shows them a video. Uh. Guy in a gorilla outfit comes and dances around, waves his arms, and leaves stage. Not one person observed a man in a gorilla suit. Not one stupid because they were not expecting it. So their mind, like, digitized it out. You don't believe it, you don't see it, right? Right. So think of somebody seeing an angel, and you're in the same room, but you don't see it, because your mind is not accepting. You've digitalized that image out. Okay, I got another special ed story for you, and expectations. A new teacher comes into a classroom and she's told, you know, um, th- these are special ed kids, but you are, you know, do your best with them. And and so she works with them and works with them and goes and reads up on the records and she finds in the records um, a number and she realizes, she thinks, you know, she, it, it's their IQ and she goes back to the classroom and she says to all of them, I've just seen all your records. I know your IQs. You're a lot smarter than anybody thinks, and that you that you are behaving. So let's get to work because 
according to your IQ, you are a lot smarter than anybody has given you credit for. So let's let's get to work. There, they learned. They, they they. It was amazing what the kids did. At the end of the school year, the principal called her in and said, "You did a phenomenal job." A lot of the kids got put back in regular classrooms. And she said, well, I saw their IQs. And he said, what? And she said, I, I read their reports. I looked at their records. I saw their IQs, and I taught them accordingly. And he said, we don't put IQs in those reports. I said, well, of course you do. Here, look at it. It's right here at the top of the page. He said, those are their locker numbers. <laughs> and because her expectation and their expectation when they were told they were smarter was so much greater that they they lived up to the expectations. And that's a true story. Again, again it's all about beliefs. So if, yeah. you, if you raise a, raise in a household where your parents tell you you're stupid, you're dumb, you're never going to be any good, you're lazy, you're sick, you're nuts, whatever it is, how many people were raised in a household where parents belittle their own children daily, creating that belief system in the child about themselves? Uh-huh. You know, nobody will look at you. You know, you're ugly. You know, and you see it. You see grown adults. You can tell what kind of raising they had because some people just they've lost that self confidence. They've lost that self belief. Uh, and and they're and they're needy. They never got that home. They never got that the joy from a relationship. Somebody uh-huh. believes in them and trusts. Them. So, yeah. So my my people is believe in people. Believe in yourself. Don't dwell on the negative about yourself nor others. It doesn't help a lot to. It's like telling a fat person you're fat. They know they're fat. Come on, fat person doesn't know they're fat. They know they're fat. It's like <laughs> if you keep telling. Yeah, that's really gonna. That's it. They're gonna go on diet now. Come on. So. So, in India, I I had a uh, talk about to go back to this. If you believe it, you see it thing. I I had a major major heart attack. I've had heart attacks everywhere, and several in India. But I was, <laughs> I was. I have to be more specific. I was getting ready to leave India. This was 2011. I was getting ready to leave India. I, I had a major heart attack. And I was the last day at the ashram. I'm staying at an ashram. And I'm sitting in the kitchen area with about four other people. And I felt somebody, you ever, you ever be in a movie theater? Think, think about this. You're in a movie theater and you know when somebody's staring at your back, Barbara. You ever feel that? So you know yeah. somebody's staring at you. You feel it. You turn around. What are you looking at me for? What? Yeah, you're staring at the back. You can make them turn around. So it felt like that. So I turn around, and over my shoulder is this dead uh, yogi, so this guru, uh, Sri Teshwar, who is the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda, for those who have read the autobiography. But it, those who haven't read it or don't know what he is, he, he died in 1930s, but he was this very spiritual man and uh, wrote so, a beautiful book. Uh, and books, and there he was standing there, and he had his arms folded, <clears throat> kind of looking at me, <clears throat> and uh, I could feel this love, <clears throat> and I felt his presence, and so I looked around the group, 
<clears throat> boy, the smoke getting to me here in California. Sorry. Uh-huh. And there was this lady there from one of the Scandinavian countries, a, a beautiful woman. I mean, physically beautiful, spiritually beautiful, just a nice person. And she, uh, <clears throat> she goes, <clears throat> no, she hadn't been meditating deeply that long, that many years. She was, uh, she was into it. But she says, I don't see anything. I don't feel crazy. I said, no, do you see anything behind me? She goes, no. And I think there was somebody else with her. We don't see nothing. I said, okay. And then there was a guy from Texas. And I said, do you see anything? He says, well, no. He says, he says I see this bright light behind you. And I'm in great love. I said, well, okay, that's interesting. So he'd been meditating a long time, and he was into it. So his level of belief and acceptance, he saw the light. He felt love, right? And then there was another guy, a lawyer, young lawyer, and I looked at him, and I go, what do you see? He says, well, you're not going to believe this, Bill. And I go, yeah, yeah, try me. He says, I see Sira Teshwar standing behind you with his arms folded, much like our guru does when he's around you. And I says, and he says, I'm feeling love, lots of love. And I said, yes, Brian was his name. I said, yes, Brian, it's exactly what I feel. So there's a case where there's several people in the same exact space, of a building, right? Different levels of ability to believe, different openness, a different level of meditation, whatever it was. Maybe it was just belief. <clears throat> One or two not open to anything, and they didn't see nothing, they didn't feel nothing. But in that uh-huh. same room, one feels the love and sees the light. And the other was there to verify what I saw and saw exactly and felt exactly what I did, which gave me a gift. Because when you get somebody to verify when you're having a vision or something, you know, it's really nice to have a verification once in a while. That's kind of nice. Oh, yeah. But it's taught me a lesson that acceptance. There's, there's, there's two women, beautiful people, beautiful souls, but they had not been able to see it because their belief was not such. You know, it just, it just wasn't there for them. So we need to go through life and open our hearts up and open our minds up and really see what's there. I gave that story at a talk I was giving with a pretty good-sized audience. It was about 500 people. And when I gave that talk, I looked, I looked up. I felt, I felt a energy and a presence of angels uh, kind of like floating around the ceiling, right? And I'm uh-huh. looking up and I'm going, we're not alone. We're not alone. And they're just looking at me. And I'm pretty soon, without me saying so much, I'm looking at about 80% of the audience. Tears are rolling down their cheeks, as are mine. Uh-huh. <laughs> For some reason, everybody was, or not everybody, but 80% of the people in the audience are crying. Going wide. It was a joyful blissful cry and I look up there and I, I said we're not alone right we're not alone and it was like the room was just being blessed with these angels and they could feel it at the level you feel emotional they felt it they couldn't see it but they felt it and I thought when you could take almost 500 people and you get them into a metaphysical state where they could feel the presence of angels enough to shed tears without 
knowing what's going on. I mean, what a, what a beautiful thing, right? Oh well, yeah, and and an ex, and an experience they'll probably never forget. And and part of that too is is group energy helps you to get there. It's it's a powerful thing when when you get people meditating or or focusing. It, it's it's it almost resonates to the very core of your being when you when you are in a in at least for me, in in a large group like that where everyone is focused, or when they're either chanting or meditating or whatever, that that is that is a very powerful energy. And when when you're manifesting something like angels with unconditional love, that's enough to make everybody weep from joy. Yeah, it was it was a moving experience even for me. It was had a lot of experiences. I, I always like to be able to share experience, uh, and, and so that was just one of those blissful times. I've had some workshops. Uh, I don't know if I'll do the same thing again because everybody's, uh, you know, fear of the virus and everything. But I, I, we would do one of these group, literally a group hug, you know, with, with somebody that really needed prayers or pulling in the middle. And I've seen some beautiful results. Uh, oh yeah. And, well, and you know, you, you you can do that though. You can do that virtually. Um, but it just it just <laughs> speaking of virtually, <clears throat> um, I just noticed our time and and we've talked it out. And I didn't get to most of the things, but I thought we I I'm sure we got to what was most important to get to because otherwise we wouldn't have been talking. But. I, I do want to thank you because um, you, you've certainly um, been a joy to talk to, and, and hopefully I can get you back again um, sometime soon. Well, thank you. That's very gracious of you. And uh, just as a parting word of advice for people, love who you're with, love where you're at, and love what you got. Be appreciative. If you can't appreciate what you have, you're never going to appreciate what you're seeking. Ah, very. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you so much again. I want to thank everybody for being here. Please uh, check us out on on YouTube. And if you're so inclined, subscribe. Uh, I hope that, that you have gotten as much out of this day as I have. Have a great one, everybody. Bye bye.